you found a message that was delivered at Living Streams Community Church in McCordsville, Indiana. We are praying the time you invest hearing God's Word encourages you in your walk with Jesus and inspires you to share Him with others. If you want to learn more about us or send us a prayer request, visit our website, livingstreamscc.org. Thank you for listening. Good morning. Good to see all of you. Welcome, welcome, welcome. You can take your Bibles and turn to Luke chapter 15. We're in a series called At His Feet for the Summer. You know, VBS is like a month away. We got one day. And the biggest need we have is kids. So uh, I'm recruiting all of you. You you are now recruiters for VBS. Uh, Go on out there and let them know that there's a Saturday for kids here to learn about Jesus. And uh, it'll be a a really good day. And I don't know how I missed this. Probably because I was sitting in the front row. But there's an answer to prayer here today, Greg. Welcome, brother. Good to see you, man. I was going to come see you, and you came to see me. Hey, that's this God at work, so praise God for for that. Very good to see you. So, recruiting kids, that's what we we need to be doing out there in the neighborhoods where you live, in schools, and wherever you see them. Um, We'll have cards and stuff available. The sign's going to go out this week, one day, June 26th, and all day we're going to have fun with them. All right. All right, so Luke 15. Last week we studied the parable of the sower, and in our study in, in, uh, on Tuesday night, they called that parable, the author called that parable the most important parable. And I thought that was pre- pretty interesting. Uh, but today we're looking at uh, these lost and found parables, and I would call them maybe the most well-known of Jesus' stories. So we're going to start in verses 1 to 10, and I'll read the rest of it later on in the message. Um, let's sit at his feet. Now the tax collectors and sinners were all drawing near to him, and the Pharisees and the scribes grumbled, saying, This man receives sinners and eats with them. So he told them this parable. What man of you, having a hundred sheep, if he has lost one of them, does not leave the ninety-nine in the open country and go after the one that is lost until he finds it? And when he has found it, he lays it on his shoulders, rejoicing. And when he comes home, he calls together his friends and his neighbors, saying to them, Rejoice with me, for I have found my sheep that was lost. Just so, I tell you, there will be more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents than over ninety-nine righteous persons who need no repentance. Or what woman, having ten silver coins, if she loses one coin, does not light a lamp and sweep the house and seek diligently until she finds it? And when she has found it, she calls together her friends and neighbors, saying, Rejoice with me, for I have found the coin that I had lost. Just so I tell you, there is joy before the angels of God over one sinner who repents. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for these stories of lost and found. What a picture they paint for us of who you are. 
And we, we pray, Lord, as we come. I mean, I come here today distracted and rushed. We pray as we sit at your feet right now that all those distractions and all those hurried things going on in our hearts and minds would be set aside. That we would understand the love that you have for people, for us. We need your Holy Spirit to help us understand, to bring it alive again to us, to make it the most precious thing that we could ever want or have in our life. Do that work in us today, Lord. Thank you for your steadfast love. Thank you for your presence here right now. Faithful, true. I pray the words of my mouth and the meditations of my heart would be pleasing in your sight. O Lord, my rock and my redeemer, in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So lost and found stories. You know, they are always stories of agony and ecstasy. And depending on what was lost and then found, you know, the agony and ecstasy might be really high or, or really low. For instance, on Friday, this, this just past Friday, I was officiating a wedding, and I was getting ready to leave the house, and I could not find my keys, as it happens. And it seems to be happening more often. So I did not want to be late. You don't want to be late. You know, the pastor should not be late to the wedding. It makes people nervous, you know, and stresses them out. So I'm kind of in a panic at home, you know, running into the kitchen, running down to the basement, running wherever I had been in the house, trying to find my keys, looking at my watch. I'm not really looking very hard or very well because of all the distractions. And I'm just, God, where are they at? You know, so... He led me to them, I found them, I did a little happy dance, praise and thank you, God, and got on my way. Do you know what I'm talking about? You know the agony and the ecstasy of lost and found stories? Well, we are going to get into three of them here this morning, and I, as, I, as I read them this week again, and I was thinking about them, and... Um, Looking at all the all the wonderful things in these stories, I thought, boy, there's a lot of potential. A lot of potential here as we sit at Jesus' feet. You know, maybe maybe you are here today and the agony doesn't seem to have any hope of turning to ecstasy. Maybe you're here today and you're remembering your lost and found story, and you're rejoicing over God's heart for lost things. Maybe you're here searching frantically. Or maybe you're, you're the one feeling lost. Now, I, I don't know. We have all different scenarios, different circumstances, but I've been praying that these stories would move our hearts to be able to to hear and see and know God's heart for people. Because that would be good. Good for us and good for God's kingdom. So in this first parable, there's a call to hear. 
um, call to the search. Verses 1 and 2, they, they give us the setting for these lost and found stories. Jesus is um, there, it says, tax collectors and sinners are coming to Jesus, and he's receiving them, and he's sitting with them, and he's eating with them. The most holy person that ever lived is hanging out with the most unholy people that you could imagine. Tax collectors are despised people in their community. They've been hired by the government, the Roman government, um, so they're uh, their neighbor has been hired, your neighbor has been hired by the Roman government, and they set up a booth, and you have to come and pay the tax, except they go a little beyond what the Roman government requires, and they try to get out of you as much as they can, and they pocket the excess. So, tax collectors, you can imagine how despised they were, how hated they were by their neighbors. And then the sinners are also mentioned there, alongside the tax collectors. So, these are some, some pretty rough people, think murderers. Uh, Think prostitutes, thieves, abusers. The the New Living Translation calls them notorious sinners. And then, of course, you know, there's regular sinners there too. You know, people who feel the weight of their sin, people who kind of stay away from the religious people. You know, they're just not good enough to be in that crowd. People who are poor in spirit. So that is the group. There's saints and there's sinners. Pharisees, tax collectors. That's who Jesus is gathering. That's who he's attracting. And why is he attracting those kind of people? Because he treats them differently than religious folk do. He sees them differently. Matthew 9, 36, it says how he sees the crowds. He sees them as harassed and helpless, like sheep without a shepherd. So instead of avoiding them, he says, hey, come on. Come here, have a seat. He's he's not condemning them by avoiding them. He's actually eating with them, which in the Middle Eastern countries is a very intimate thing that you could do with someone is share a meal. Jesus is truly a friend of sinners. Thank the Lord. So he uses this occasion of the Pharisees complaining and grumbling about the company he is keeping to share these lost and found stories. So imagine if you were a shepherd and you owned a hundred sheep and one of them during the course of the day wanders off as sheep will do. What do you do? Do you think, well... You know, easy come, easy go. I got 100, I got 99 here, you know, I can let, I can let one go. You know, dumb sheep. It's made its bed. Now it can lie in it. I hope a wolf gets it. You know, that kind of thing. Do we, do we blame the sheep for wandering off? We, we, we might. We might. But not the good shepherd. The good shepherd leaves the 99 and he goes after the one. He goes on this search and rescue operation to find that one lost life who's in peril. So Jesus, he's telling this first story to call the saints to join God on the search for sinners. In his details of the shepherd, you can hear him taking responsibility for the lostness of what was lost. 
And that was different language than they were used to hearing. Middle Eastern language would never say, I lost my sheep. Saying, I lost it. In the telling of these lost and found stories, it would always be, I, I had to search for my sheep that was lost. It's the sheep's problem. And that's even how the shepherd put it in verse 6 when he's calling everybody to come and celebrate that he found the sheep. I found my sheep. Come and celebrate. My sheep that was lost, not my sheep that I lost. So in this story, Jesus is describing words of a, a searcher who has, who has said, I have lost something and I'm going to go search for it. And so this is really a huge thing for us to hear the call to go searching. It's a huge thing for us. Instead of thinking critically about lost sheep, we think about them compassionately. Instead of saying, ah, oh, they, they made their bed, they've made their decisions, now they got to deal, they got to live with it. Instead of thinking that way, we think, you know, sheep wander off. They get lost. That's what they do. They can't do anything else. It's not in them. Now I got to go out there. And I got to do what I can do to be part of this search and rescue and lead them to the good shepherd who can do something about their deepest need. Hunting for sheep is not easy. They go into dangerous places, dark places, places that we are not comfortable going. And so it takes intentional effort. It takes putting ourselves at risk. It takes stepping out in courage in the midst of our fear to go after them. We have this light that God has put inside of us to show people. And that is gospel love. It is that self-sacrificing, you know, pick up your cross, follow me for people who do not deserve it, that kind of love, that kind of light. It's that kind of light that draws people to Christ, showing them how he loves us. And that's what we're called to do. As followers of Jesus who have heard the good shepherd's voice, who have accepted him into our lives and know him, we have been set free from the powers of sin and darkness. Lost sheep have not. There's a call here. It's a call to the church. Can you hear it? A call to go searching. Now the next lost and found story, Jesus changes what was lost from sheep to money. And so here we can see the value that God places on just one lost person. Just one lost person. Um, so in this story, it seems that Jesus is beginning to move from talking to the people at the back of the room who are the righteous, who are staying away from the sinners so they don't get contaminated. He's moving from talking to them to the people sitting at his feet, wanting to hear what they had to say, what he has to say, feeling worthless. Imagine that you are a woman. A little easier for some of you than others. You're a woman and you've just been given your budget money to run your house for a whole month. And in the course of the day, somehow one of those coins gets lost. It falls. Now your house is like a lot of other houses on the block. It's got stone floors with cracks that seem to be magnets for coins. And so, at the end of the day, it's dark, and you've lost a tenth of your budget for the month. What do you do? 
ah, the budget will just be a little tighter this month. It's just one coin. Maybe it's like, you know, ah, there's a penny. Just keep walking. We might do that. But not this woman or our God. The coin is lost. And so light a lamp. Get down on your hands and knees and go where lost coins would be. Search through all those cracks and crevices in the floor until you find it. If the coin had little value, the search would not have commenced. But it went on. All the effort went on. In fact, it finished with the block party. This is an amazing thing. Now, We live in a country. If you were born here, you've grown up with this attitude, with this thought. The value we place on people depends on what they can contribute, what they can produce. That's the water we swim in. We don't know any different. It's the air that we breathe. If you're not making your mark, if you're not producing, if you're not changing the world, if you're not significant, you know, and there's something inside of us, that, inside of all of us, that wants to be significant. And that's the attitude. If you're not doing these things, you're nobody. You're, you're just wasting air. Let somebody else breathe it who's making a mark. And if we latch on to that definition of the world, the world's definition of value, we will never feel valuable. Because there's always going to be somebody else who beats us. Or at least looks like they do. Always. But in God's country, this definition changes. Your value is not attached to what you do or what you contribute. He does not care if you have a GED or a PhD. He does not care if you are changing diapers, changing oil, or changing a company's website. He does not care. You bear his image. You are uniquely made a human being that he dreamed up and wanted to have life. You have value to God. And it does not increase if you are a winner in the world's eyes. It also does not decrease if you are a loser. You know? Insignificant. A nobody. Your name is not on any door with any title. You're a C student. You're a mess. You're unemployed. You're underachieving. You're under a ton of guilt for the mistakes that you've made in your life. Jesus' crowd is full of these people. They are sitting there at his feet to hear these lost and found stories spurred on by the complaints of the saints Jesus has moved his eyes to them and he wants them to know how much God values them. They are his treasure. His prized creation, fearfully and wonderfully made. And he is searching for them. And when they get found, just one of them gets found, turns to God. Heaven has a block party. Just one. 
seeing the value that God places on human life changes a whole lot about how we see people and how we see ourselves. I think this is at the root of a lot of the problems in our country today. How we see people, how we value people. I mean, no matter what the color of your skin is, you are God's treasure. You just don't live as close to the equator as others. No matter what you do for a living, no matter where you live, no matter how much money you have, no matter how weak you are, if you've got friends or not, you are more precious than rubies. No matter what you've done, who you've hurt, what you've destroyed, who you've betrayed, God is looking for you. And He will not stop until you are found or your life is over. Can you believe that? It's hard to believe. I mean, that could be one of the reasons why Jesus told another lost and found story. To give them evidence, to show them in full detail how much he loves us. He says, here is this story that's going to show that how, how long, how high, how wide, how deep is the Father's love. You have got to know this love. You've got to know it. So he's, he's going now into full-on search mode. Full-on search mode with this story of father and his two sons. Because these folks need to know this kind of love. It's unlike anything you've ever experienced. If they can grasp it, it'll change their life, and it'll change ours too if we can get it. If we can receive it. Let's read it. Verses 11 to 32. And he said, There was a man who had two sons. And the younger of them said to his father, Father, give me the share of property that is coming to me. And he divided his property between them. Not many days later, the younger son gathered all he had and took a journey into a far country. And there he squandered his property on reckless living. And when he had spent everything, a severe famine arose in that country and he began to be in need. So he went and hired himself out to one of the citizens of that country who sent him into his fields to feed pigs. And he was longing to be fed with the pods that the pigs ate, and no one gave him anything. But when he came to himself, he said, How many of my father's hired servants have more than enough bread? But I perish here with hunger. I will arise and go to my father, and I will say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Treat me as one of your hired servants. And he arose and came to his father. But while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and felt compassion and ran and embraced and kissed him. And the son said to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father said to his servants, Bring quickly the best robe and put it on him and put a ring on his hand and shoes on his feet and bring the fattened calf and kill it and let us eat and celebrate. For this my son was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found, and they began to celebrate. Now his older son was in the field. And as he came and drew near to the house, he heard music and dancing. And he called one of the servants and asked what these things meant. And he said to him, your brother has come, 
And your father has killed the fattened calf because he has received him back safe and sound. But he was angry and refused to go in. His father came out and treated him. He answered his father, Look, these many years I have served you and I never disobeyed your command. Yet you never gave me a young goat that I might celebrate with my friends. But when this son of yours came who has devoured your property with prostitutes, you killed the fattened calf for him. And he said to him, Son, you are always with me. And all that I all that is mine is yours. It is fitting to celebrate and be glad, for this your brother was dead and is alive. He was lost and is found. When we hear that story, it's very easy for us to focus on the behavior of the two sons and what they did. You know, it's natural for us to do that. But what I want to focus on is the thread of love all throughout this story that comes from the Father. So the first thing we can see in the first two verses there is there is love in the letting go. Jesus introduces the drama. He says there's a man who had two sons. Now back in the day, those relationships in a family were the most important relationships There was great care taken to honor the family name, your father's name. And if you were a son in a family, you had great responsibility to do that and to take care of the family, especially after the father dies. So this younger son, he comes to his father and basically says, I want out of this. I want out from under your leadership. I want out from under this responsibility, your authority, your care. Give me what is mine. In a sense saying, I wish you were dead. Now the older son isn't mentioned in these first two verses other than that he exists, but it's in the silence that tells us about his heart. See, he would have been very aware of what his younger brother was doing, And he would have been the one who was responsible to try and make peace between the younger son and the father. And so when they divided up the inheritance, the older son would have received his portion too. He would have gotten two-thirds, and the younger one would have gotten one-third. Now that inheritance wasn't coming in, you know, cash. It was coming in property and flocks. And so for the younger son to be able to leave town, he had to liquidate. And it says he, did, he, he left pretty quickly. So what that means is he took the property he was given, he took the flocks, and he made a quick deal, which, which means he, got, uh, you know, he sold it cheap. He wanted, he wanted out of there. So all of that's going on, and we never hear anything about the older son stepping in to try to talk him out of it. And it was his responsibility. All we got is silence. So we know there's bad blood already between these two brothers. Imagine hearing hearing this from one of your children. Now, their families in the Middle East, they operate different from our families. Their families stick together. It's not, you know, grow the kids up so they leave the nest and you got an empty nest. No, no. Kids stick around. You know, in India, they say it would be very strange for a son to leave his mother. 
You know, very strange. So it's a different thing. So what kind of sorrow would you feel in your heart to hear your son or your daughter say to you, I don't want to live here anymore. Give me what I got coming to me so I can leave. And what this father does is really hard to imagine. He does not argue with him. He doesn't try to turn him, turn him back. He doesn't get angry and strike back. He could have said, fine. Don't ever think about showing your face around here again. Or he could have said, you're insane. Go to your room. Well, I think of a punishment fitting for this crime. It's not what he does. He grants him his request. He gave his son the freedom to reject his love. And lets him go. Make no mistake, that father's heart is a broken. It's broken. He has a broken heart, but his hope is alive. He keeps that door open for a future change of heart, for his son to come home. This is the son breaking with the father, not the father breaking with the son. So there's a lot of love in the letting go. There's a lot of pain in loving that way, which is what makes it so special. In verses 13 and 19, we kind of started hearing how things go for the prodigal. And it helps us know how we how to not give up on them. Because there's a lot of love in the painful circumstances that they experience. So after the legalities are all completed, and the, the younger son would have had this urgency to get out of town because as word spread throughout the town what he was doing, no one would have approved. And he would have been rejected. So if he would ever needed, ever wanted to return, you know, if things went badly, um, it wasn't it wasn't going to be easy for him. So the prodigal is not only risking rejecting his family, but also his own people, whom he was leaving. Nonetheless, with all that at risk, he says, "I got to get out of here. I got to go find some people who will like me for me." I got to go find people who don't know my family, who don't know my father, people who will approve and affirm of the way I want to live my life. And that's exactly what he does. He cashes in and he heads off to a far country to try and live a different life. Now, we don't have details about what reckless living is for him, but it's very possible that he was throwing money around to win friends and influence people. And then comes pain in verse 14. Just as the money runs out, a severe famine. As, you know, as things go, right? (laughs) Nothing to eat anywhere. Back then, the world doesn't know about it. You know, there's no food baskets coming for, you know, other countries to help feed people. It is every day people are starving. They begin to get angry with each other. They are fighting for any morsel of food. It would have been a dangerous place to live. Every day they're waking up to more dead people in the street from starvation. So desperation goes up. You would have thought that would have got the prodigal to start thinking about home. But no, under those circumstances, verse 15 says, he goes to a prominent member of the community to ask for a job. And so he gets one. But the job he gets tells us that the man who hired him didn't really want him around. 
The quickest way to get rid of a Jewish person is to give them a job feeding pigs. But prodigal pride is strong. It was still more than the pain he was experiencing in his body, in his heart. No way I'm going home to my older brother, live on his inheritance, under his authority, after I lost mine. There's no way I'm suffering that. There is no way I'm going to go home and face the shame of my father's disapproval and the rejection of my neighbors. No way. Give me the bucket to feed these pigs. Eventually, though, after he slapped them a few times and starts looking at their food thinking, that's looking good, he starts thinking about going back. As verse 17 begins, it sounds like he's beginning to have a change of heart. But the plan that he comes up with tells us something different. The humiliation of feeding pigs and the pain in his stomach got him thinking. But he doesn't take any responsibility for what he did. He doesn't say, I shame my family, I disown my father, I hurt my community. He says, nobody who works for my dad is hungry. I'm going to go ask for a job. My first words are going to be, Father, I have sinned against heaven and against you. Now, those words are not original to the prodigal. Moses got them from Pharaoh when Pharaoh was trying to manipulate him, trying to show him, I have repented. So the people in the back of the room who are listening to this story would have known what's going on. The prodigal is not speaking words of repentance here. These are going to be words of manipulation. Father, I have done you a great wrong. I am not worthy to be called your son. Hire me as your servant. See, his plan was to save his own life. His father, if he would hire him, he could go and live independently somewhere outside the village. He could start earning money. He would not be beholden to his brother. If he was hired, it would establish a servant-master relationship with his father. He would learn a trade and be able to pay back what he lost. He's not looking for reconciliation. He's looking for compensation so he can try to make right what he did wrong. Now, Jesus doesn't tell us what the father is doing while the son is off in the far country. But we know from the other two parables that he is searching. He is fighting for his son. That far country that the prodigal went to is not too far away for God not to show up there. And he does show up. How does he show up? In the pain. In the pain. The pain of the famine got the prodigal to start thinking about going home. Even to devise that plan, you know, that was in his own self-interest. Starts thinking about going home. And if you look throughout Scripture, there are examples of God doing this. God used trials in Joseph's life, Joseph's life to prepare him to, to be in service for, for his nation. God used the desert life to teach his people obedience. God used Jonah in the belly of the, or the, belly of the fish, put Jonah in there to get his attention. He uses the pain of um, suffering in this world and the pain of our sin. He lovingly uses that to get us to think about coming home. There's love in these painful circumstances. In verse 20, it begins the journey home for the prodigal. 
But what happens once he gets there is totally unexpected. There's love in the welcome home. While the son is still a long way out, the father sees him. And in that moment, he's overwhelmed with compassion for his son. And he runs to embrace him. What the father does there to welcome his son home was a disgraceful, shameful thing to do. Because a man at his age and stage doesn't run anywhere. This guy probably hadn't run in 40 years. And to be able to run, like, you know, get a good sprint going, you've got to pull up his robe, which bears his legs to the public. Another humiliating thing to do as a Middle Eastern man. The father didn't wait for his son to make his way through town and expose him to public community rejection. Instead, the father makes a public spectacle of himself and he races in humiliation to receive his son. What we are getting right there is a picture of gospel love in salvation. When the father leaves his home, his place of honor, that is a picture of the son leaving his home in heaven, putting skin on and coming here to live our life. We have a picture of that. And that extravagant, self-humiliating love of Jesus enduring the cross so that he can embrace us. That's this picture. It's what he does to get lost prodigals to receive him. Romans 2, 4 says, Don't you see how wonderfully kind, tolerant, and patient God is with you? Does this mean nothing to you? Can't you see that his kindness is intended to turn you from your sin? That's exactly what turns the heart of the prodigal to the father. It's very likely this father's sprint to his son was accompanied by the village. You know, in the Middle East, if you ever see them on the news and there's something going on in the middle of the street, there's always a group of people around watching. So picture, this isn't like on the front porch of the father's home and the son's coming up the driveway and they have this beautiful meeting. No, no, this is happening in the middle of the public square, encircled by a bunch of people. This is not a private moment. It is a public welcoming. The prodigal begins his speech, but it doesn't go as he planned. Father, I've sinned against heaven and against you. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. And then the father interrupts. It's an unexpected welcome he's given. This extravagant love shown, this shameful display of love for his son made that prodigal's plan seem offensive. Instead, he trusts his life to his father's will. He just said, I'm home. Do with me what you will. So Jesus takes the story the same way the other two stories went. They go to a party. The father tells the servants, put the best robe on him. That would have been one of his robes. Put a ring on his finger. That would have been the family signet ring. Anyone who wore that had authority of the family, could sign documents. Put shoes on his feet. Sons wear shoes. Servants go barefoot. Kill the fattened calf. Grass-fed Angus beef. A delicacy. Living for those living then. 
So the wardrobe, the menu, the celebration, they all make up this welcome home. The son that was dead is now alive again. What was lost has been found. So much love in that welcome. But Jesus isn't done yet. In these final seven verses, there's love in in the reconciliation effort that we can see. So he brings this story around to the older brother, which is a clear sign he wants to get... He wants to give those Pharisees in the back of the room a chance to be found. In verse 25, the older son comes in from the fields. And as he approaches the house, he can tell a party is going on. And so that means since the festivities are in full swing, the guests would already be all there. And so he calls a servant. What's happening? And he tells him. Tells him about his brother. Tells him about the party. And he gets angry. Hopping mad. His refusal to go in, he wasn't just rejecting the party for his brother. He was acting in rebellion against his father. We should understand that the older son had a duty in the house. And if they were going to throw a party for the public, it was his job to personally greet every guest and shake their hand. Not doing that would have been a personal insult to the one who came. It would also be the duty of the older son to be the head waiter at this party, making sure all the guest glasses were filled, their plates were full. When we've eaten a meal in India, that happens. There's always somebody hovering around the table, making sure we have everything we need. Our plate never gets empty. It's a Middle Eastern thing. So not being in there is an act of rebellion against his father. The thought of serving his brother was just too much for him. So he refuses to go in. Now we should compare what he does at the end of the story with what the younger son did at the beginning of the story. Both of them rebelled against their father. But the prodigal, he did it in private. And the older son made it public. The father shows the same love to the older son that he showed to the younger when he welcomed him home. To get up and leave a party that you're the host of does not happen. It's a gasp-worthy humiliation. He didn't sit at the head of the table and order his son to come in and give him a public correction. He didn't shame him. He went out to him and he pleaded with him. Pleaded with him to join the party. And once again, this is likely not a private moment. If the host of your party gets up and suffers that humiliation, you can bet people around that table would have got up too. Maybe even the younger son. What is dad doing? We don't have the words he spoke. It just says he begged his son, entreated him, please come in. Please join the celebration. Please rejoice that your brother has come home. Please But the answer he gets shouts out disrespect and bitterness and resentment and pride. The older son says, this is the way I see it. I've served you all these years. All these years, I've never done anything wrong to you. That's how the older son is relating to his father as a servant. Because I have kept the law, I deserve some kind of reward. But instead, you throw a party for the younger one, not my brother, your son, 
who threw away his money on prostitutes, and you served up the best we have for him. So both sons, one a lawbreaker, the other a lawkeeper, sinned against the father by breaking the relationship with him. They both wanted to live as servants, but the father wants sons. One accepted the love of his father, and the other one we will, we will not know. So in this story, the father, he only corrects one thing that the son said. He reminds him that that was indeed his brother. And then he goes on to justify the party. Son, all I have is yours. We just made sure of that legally. Two-thirds of it is in your name. <laughs> it is absolutely right to throw a party and be happy that your son was dead and now he is alive again. He was lost and came home and has been found. Now it's your turn. Let's have our worship team back up. These stories are full of agony and ecstasy. We shouldn't close worship with singing without asking the all-important question, so what? So what? Has God shined a light in your heart with these lost and found stories? Has he shined a light? This love is so powerful. It is so powerful. Do you know it? Do you know it? Can you see it in your life? In your past? In your present? The love in, in the letting go. The love in the pain that you experience. Maybe that you're experiencing right now. The love in the welcome loving God working for reconciliation do you know this love how do you respond to it father I have sinned against heaven and against you I am not worthy to be called your son or your daughter Is this possible? Because of that. That's the only way it's possible. It's the only way for us to receive this love in our life is through that cross, what Jesus has done for us. Suffering, public humiliation, bearing his entire body before people suffering the shameful mocking and rejection of his own people when he had it in his power to come down the the nails did not hold him on the cross God's love did 
know that love. His blood was shed for the forgiveness of our sins. There is no other way. He opened the way for us to come home. We need to come home. need to hear the call, the call to go searching again. Brothers and sisters, there's a treasure hunt out there for us. God's calling us to it today. Lost sheep, lost coins, lost people who really just can't do anything but be 